Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Frank Wallace is an accomplished guitarist. He's played throughout the Americas and Europe since 1976, including performances at the Holland Festival, the Regensburg Festival, Musica en Compostela, Tasco International Guitar Festival, the Boston Early Music Festival, the Barcelona Festival, and many others, um, including the Guitar Foundation of America. He has recorded 16, that's 16 CDs. Almost as impressive as his catalog are his accomplishments as a composer, a teacher, a recording engineer, a publisher, and a director of musical and guitar projects. His compositions have been honored by the New Hampshire Council on the Arts Fellowship Award, and Soundboard Magazine calls him an impressive, I'm quoting, an impressive talent in every respect. He is a strong guitarist, a composer with a distinct voice, and a confident vocalist. He uh, records and engineers and produces all his own works. He has his own uh, label um, and uh, an impressive guy in many respects. I was lucky enough to meet Frank at the University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest where I took a master class with him. He allowed me to play Recuerdos de la Alhambra all the way through, which at the time was, for a, was a first for me and was, I must say, uh, absolutely exhausting. Frank was generous enough afterwards after the festival was over to give me an hour of his time and what follows is an edited version of our conversation on the intersection of music and commerce enjoy all right here we are at the university of rhode island guitar fest welcome frank wallace thank you dan it's nice to be here right. pleasure so we want to talk a little bit about the intersection of music and commerce. Maybe start off with uh, going all the way back to your childhood. Where, when did you start playing guitar? Oh. I was 12 or 13 years old. I was playing accordion. Accordion, right. Uh, and uh, my, I had older sisters and mother who played piano, but too seriously. There was an inspiration for the accordion. Yeah, there Myron Florin. He was a great... Accordion player of from the day Lawrence for, Welk. Champagne hour on a Lawrence Welk show. Nice. Yeah. Okay. My grandparents came to visit from, from Houston, Texas to California and didn't see them very often. And when I came, we watched Lawrence Welk show. Nice. And I just became fascinated by it. I, I remember that show, yeah. And, uh, you know, as, as a composer now, I kind of hate major keys, but I. I my best of my memory, I'm not sure he ever played in the minor key. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, really. But it just, it yeah. was happy hour. You know, it was happy music. Happy well, there, music yeah, there's some quote uh, from Julian Bream. Mirth, to my mind, is as great and as important as pathos. But somehow, in classical concerts, you largely get the pathos. I, I, um, I, I, I indulge myself. Good, good. So you're taking accordion. Her, my accordion yeah. teacher just, he, he came along one day and said, ah, oh, if you're going to be a musician, you need to have two instruments. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, bless his memory, but but you know, I kind of figure in, in, in retrospect to what I know about music and commerce is the subject of our conversation here. Yeah. I suspect he needed an extra hundred bucks that week, and so he sold me a, a Fender something or other. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> electric and though. Electric, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I uh, I sort of got into it though. I never really played rock and roll. 
And I very quickly uh, heard, I heard the Romeros just by chance. I think my parents bought a three LP set Mercury Records or something that, yep. that had the Romeros on it. And I just became fascinated by it. And I don't, they had no intent. They knew nothing about flamenco or classical or anything. And, uh-huh. and uh, I think it was just a chance thing. Mm. And I just liked it. I found myself an acoustic guitar, which happened to be a flamenco. And I got, I couldn't find a teacher, so I got Carcassi Method book and nice. at the local music store just by chance again and started teaching myself. Where, where did you grow up? San Carlos, California. Oh, California. Peninsula Bay Area. Okay. Yeah. And so the coming back to the accordion and then the guitar, your folks were uh, sort of amused by this passion um, of yours? They were supportive? They, they, it's in, it's, I have no idea what they were at the time. <laughs> they, they, they paid for my lessons then. Like okay. I said, I was probably started when I was nine or eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And this was when I was about 12. Um, the, the guitar came in? Yeah, 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 I'd say so. And I wasn't that serious about it, though. All my older siblings, three older siblings, had taken lessons and played and stuff, but nobody had gotten serious about anything. How and many kids in the family? Three, uh, four. four I was number four myself. Yeah. And um, so uh, I couldn't, so I quit oh. the recording lessons, and I started um, taking, uh, you know, I couldn't find a guitar teacher. I found a jazz guitarist at the local music store. He was pretty cool, very quiet, didn't say much. I learned a little bit about comping and, and playing jazz chords, mm-hmm. difference between a major seventh and a minor seventh chord. So I'd learned some theory sort of inadvertently. And jazz because the teacher was jazz? Yeah, he was just, okay. that's the only guy. That's, that's the only that thing I did, Again, I don't know why I didn't want a rock teacher to learn the yeah. uh, Beatles tunes or whatever, I don't know. But um, Were you listening to the Beatles at the time? What was this? This was 19... Uh, 64, 5. Uh, yeah. So they were just well, they were out, just right? coming on. Yeah. So I guess I was, I don't recall being into rock before that, like yeah. I was pressing or anything like that. Yeah. I suppose my sisters were, but I don't know. You mm. know, I don't, don't remember. My parents listened to a little bit of classical music and a fair number of musicals. Okay. Um, they would go to concerts up in San Francisco every once in a while, but it wasn't a major passion. My dad really liked his nice stereo system. Yeah. Like I, I, I got a little little sense of there's something special about hysterias. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> what were their vocations, your folks? Father was a businessman. Businessman. Finance. Finance, okay. Yeah. Worked, uh, went to Harvard Business School. Okay. Uh, after uh, Rice University. They, they grew up in Houston as I was born in Houston. Okay. And my mom went to college. She went to Rice also. They met there. But she did not pursue a career after that. That okay. World War II. Raising four so kids. She was raised four yeah, kids. That was a typical... No small feet. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, I think she was always um, frustrated. She was of that generation where she got an education. Her parents didn't stop her. Like my mother-in-law apparently was was prevented from going to college. She wanted mm-hmm. to, but her father wouldn't let her. Her okay. father was yeah. a doctor, wouldn't let yeah. her. Um, uh, she eventually went to, took herself to art school lessons in New York City and, and became a, something of a, an amateur painter, but she sold things. It was, was good. Yeah. Um, but uh, but my father was strictly in business, worked for corporations as a as a what did he call himself a controller or a financial vice president things okay. like that. Okay, yeah, so um, an accountant. But I did not inherit one little gene of that, <laughs> okay. and um, to my regret, you know, he never emphasized it. By the time. I didn't get serious about guitar. You know, as I went on, I started getting more serious about it. Still couldn't find a teacher until the summer of 69. I was about to be a senior in high school. 
and I finally found a teacher. I guess I started driving myself, my parents. But by that time, said, if you want lessons, you got to pay for it. Mow the lawn more often, get a okay. job, yeah. whatever. So I mowed people's lawns, and I earned my money. And you chose to spend it on lessons. Okay, yeah. Chose, so you had agency, you know, and you were motivated, and your yeah. folks neither discouraged you nor no. particularly no, sponsored. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they saw what was about to happen coming. I applied <laughs> to Occidental College. So, so yeah. in high school, I, was, I did have a, a motivator. There was a guy who played Paul Simon. Oh. And... Uh, and classical gas and Mason Williams and stuff like that on the steel string. And he mm-hmm. was real popular. Yep. And again, I was attracted to that, you know, yeah. as opposed to the rock band, the local rock band or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, I loved the complexity of it and the, the, the beauty of the strings and the acoustic sounds. Mm. And that's all just inexplicable, just in my genes. God, yeah. why. I mean, you just, just liked it. It hit you. It yeah. grabbed you. Okay. Yeah. So you buy to so, Occidental. Which so I applied to Occidental at Liberal Arts College in, in, um, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Glendale, I think it's. And, and, um, but they have music my, my sister had gone there. She told yeah. me they had a really nice music department. I so did. I, okay. just, I just did it. So you, you majored in music at Occidental? So, nope. No. I was uh, probably going to, but <laughs> my, 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 uh, I never had that many girlfriends, but... But, you know, I have two, two girlfriends changed my life. She, my, my late high school girlfriend, I was very, very shy in high school. And, when I, and as an aside, when I applied to go to the San Francisco Conservatory, which is the next part of the story, um, I couldn't match pitches singing. So I, they, they forced me to take voice lessons, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I went to Occidental College and was happy as a clam. Mm-hmm. I was uh, broken out of the nest. I'd broken out of my shyness, had some really good friends. Good. Uh, was sort of a big fish in a little pond in the music department. I had an excellent music department, but very small. Mm-hmm. And I was like the only classical guitar. They had a classical guitar teacher, which is one of the reasons I went there, because the only two schools in California at that time that I knew of had classical guitar teachers. Wow. Occidental was one of them. And the other was San Francisco Conservatory. Who, who was the teacher at Occidental? Uh, Daryl Dennings. Daryl Dennings. Don't okay. know him. And, but he put me, when I got a teacher, my first teacher, uh, right before my senior year of high school, threw me into uh, Bach and the Nocturnal and Hans Werner Henze. I liked Hans Werner Henze. I liked the Julian Bream's 20th Century Guitar Album, and I wanted to learn it. And my teacher just let me go into it. He just, I, again, I guess I taught myself well, but uh, I by no means had business, any business playing that stuff yet. <laughs> uh, and then I went to Occidental, and the guy threw me in the concert of the and I was not a virtu- I was not a childhood prodigy or anything. I was good, um, but I don't know what I you know. At any rate, um, uh, I, I I had a certain instinct that this wasn't right. Meaning um, what? The, 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 was, the way you were playing, or no? The, that they were throwing this this stuff at me. Oh, the, the, um, the stuff that stuff was, was too it was too hard. hard. It was okay, too hard yeah. and I, I get that uh, sense all the time with the stuff that I yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's still it's still a bit of a problem in some some. Some, some guitar teachers still tend to do that. But it's changed a lot, I mean, yeah. obviously. But, but, um, but when I went to Occidental, I was happy as a clam, except my girlfriend fell apart. She wanted to get married and buy a house. And, okay. And, you know, she was moving too fast for you. She was moving way too fast. And I knew that, but I wasn't quite strong enough to say no. So I applied to San Francisco Conservatory at Thanksgiving vacation, got accepted, and a month later... Which is where she was? Sorry, uh, I missed yeah, that part. Yeah, back so home in the Bay Area. It's the Bay, at, I was at in, that school, or she's she was uh, she was, she was back at home. 
okay. in, in the on the Bay Area Peninsula. Okay. Yeah. So San Francisco Conservatory just would have been a way to be close to her. Yeah, no, okay. exactly. And they had a guitar teacher. They had two guitar teachers, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Lorber and Ray Royster. Okay. Both were Segovia disciples. Mm. I, both had spent several summers with with uh, Segovia in Spain. Yeah. And uh, both were very accomplished. Uh, Michael, by far the more famous. Um, but I started out with, with Ray, and uh, he did put me into some, you know, uh, slur studies and scales and, and, uh, and some Ponce etudes, Ponce, uh, what do they call preludes, and some, some simpler stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he, and, and he was, um, uh, you know, a little more methodical, you know, too obsessed with Segovia. Mm-hmm. Ray, I don't know if you're still out there, sorry, but... <laughs> um, and, I, and again, I had a certain sense of that. I wasn't... Uh, well, I'd gone to see Segovia at a 3,000-seat hall. I think that's what it was. Masonic Auditorium in San Francisco. Yeah. And was sat in, sitting in the, the, the nosebleeds, whatever. Uh, one time I sat behind him on stage, and both times I couldn't really hear him. Mm. And everybody stood up and applauded, and I was like, I couldn't even hear him. What are you applauding about? And I had yeah. a certain non-hero worship sort of mentality. I guess I was enough of a liberal hippie type or about to be liberal hippie type that I didn't want to worship the, the establishment. Yeah. Know? And I think that, you know, and Segovia was definitely the establishment. And I think funny I, because I he, he would have, at one point, he was anti-establishment because he's well, fighting to get the guitar into the right. concert halls. Absolutely. But yeah, it's fine. By that time, he's yeah, on the establishment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a whole path we can't go down. Right now. No, no. Right. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I, so my parents, when I transferred, uh, they they were very accepting. Uh, my dad, somewhere in there, I don't remember when, years before or after, I don't know, told me sort of sort of uh, laconically. What does that mean? Short, sort of, sort of, with a with tongue in cheek, sort of almost. Said, okay. You know, I wish I'd been a race car driver. And and uh, that's you know. I think he sort of meant it. Meaning, like I'm, I, like I, I respect I, you for going after your passion. Awesome, that's great. I yeah. think he, so it's like he said he, that somewhere. He, he didn't there. get to live his dream, and now he's he's willing to fund yours, basically. Basically, yeah. And they did pay for my college. I was very grateful for that. So this is still your bachelor's degree, or is this yeah, master's? Just bachelor's. Bachelor's. Okay. And so I went through conservatory. They made a small attempt to to teach us how to teach. They didn't teach us how to teach, but they put us in a teaching position at a community. Uh, school. Okay. So, so I had that opportunity to teach. Fire. And so they were sort of, yeah, trial by fire. I, I got no instruction, but they put me there. Um, and, you know, it was a little uh, half uh, effort to, to make us uh, aware that we had to go make a living. But basically nobody even talked about that. Mm. Uh, I think what was expected by Michael Lormer, who was my teacher the second two years, was that I would go to his master classes in Aspen and Hart School, uh, that I would you know, maybe meet Oscar Geely and take master classes, maybe eventually go to Segovia. And, um, but I never did that. I, um, I, my best friend in college was from New England, and he loved it, and I'd come out here and taught at a couple of summer music camps. And liked it, wanted to get away from home, so I'd broken up with that girlfriend by then. And so I came to Boston, but I wanted to meet more girls, so I joined the chorus. And that was the first priority, you know. Making uh-huh. a living was not, like, on my mind. I just right. wanted to meet girls. Uh-huh. And so uh, I, I auditioned for three choruses. Two of them were full of these 
thirty something graduates of Harvard that were just so stuck up and you know oh, yeah. I had hair down the they were all wearing slacks and they had short haircuts. And, uh-huh. you know, it was nineteen seventy four and I had what? hair down to my shoulders, sticking out like a lion mane and, and blonde hair bleached yeah. by the sun in California and dirty holy blue jeans and you know, and I went into these plays and I felt totally out of place. And then I found sort of a hippie choir. Uh-huh. What was the male-female ratio in the choirs? That I mean, it, it, oh, I, you know, I think it was pretty much in those choirs. I just went to the auditions, uh, but it was probably pretty equal there. Oh, and equal. The, okay. And the and the the choir I ended up in. One was the Cecilia Society. One was the Handel Heine Society. So they were serious choirs, amateur but serious. Yeah. Um, and I'd become a fairly good singer by then. Okay. And. Um, I wasn't serious about it, but I, I'd been in a semi-professional choir in San Francisco before I left. Uh, loved the music and stuff, so, uh, but it was oriented towards early music, and the bigger choirs were not necessarily, whereas I found this, you know, for lack of a better word, a hippie choir. It was all young people in their 20s, um, my age, uh, some of them very serious about music. And you, when you say semi-professional, they're, they're gigging regularly for money? When I was in the semi Fisher Choir, it was no. They, they were. It was a combination of professional singers and and amateur, amateur singers. Okay. Uh, and it was connected to the conservatory, but not strictly speaking. Okay. It was run by a professor there named John Bailey, who was a fabulous conductor. Uh, so we just did sort of you know like once a semester, maybe two or three concerts in the maybe semester, sort oh, okay. of oriented towards school, but it wasn't officially part of the school. Okay. And by semi-professional, I just mean that, that the standards were pretty high, and, ah, okay. and there were some professional singers in the choir. Right. Okay. Though we weren't getting paid or anything like that. So, what were you doing to pay rent at this at that time? So, when I graduated from college, I had, I had never been on my own, and mm-hmm. I came to Boston uh, with a little bit of money in my pocket and uh, and a car that I had bought, and uh, and I just. Uh, you know, went into Harvard Square and looked at the bulletin boards and uh, found a place to live within a week or so and and then just put up my own little, you know, went to a Xerox machine, you know what that is out there, sure. and <laughs> um, and uh, put up signs saying, you know, guitar lessons, you know, 10 bucks for half an hour or something So like you that. immediately went to teach And my yeah. rent was $100 a month in a, you know, with three roommates across from Tufts University. Davis Square? Davis Square. Oh, that's where I live now. Yeah. But I would be uh, remiss if I didn't state that my wife, my wife-to-be, was living on Spark Street at the same time. All right. Powder House and the Spark. Okay. Powder House yes. and the Spark. She was the Spark, and I was the Powder. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I lived there. It was $100 a month. So I had no, no debt. And, uh, and I, made, I started, you know, I got 10 students or something pretty quickly. It was making like... Uh, what did they say? Twenty dollars, twenty dollars a lesson, or hour, 10, yeah. I think it was twenty dollars an hour, ten dollars a half hour lesson. Okay. So I was making a hundred bucks a week, pretty quickly, and paying my rent, and yeah. I had three hundred dollars left over to, to live on. Yeah. And I was so, you know, with this financial father, uh, I just had no clue what was coming, <laughs> <laughs> and I just well, you're I'm, getting by, so that's I fine. Was getting I mean, by. Yeah. I at one point I wanted to buy a new guitar. A friend of mine had a Velasquez, '68 Velasquez for sale. He wanted, I think, it was nine hundred dollars. I was like, wow, I don't know how I can get nine hundred dollars, but I, I actually got my sister to co-sign a loan. To the bank, I got a loan, and got my nine hundred dollars, and bought my Velasquez guitar. So OPM, other people's money. As, there we uh, go. As yeah. Farid would say, as yeah. Far, far said, yeah. 
Okay, so so you take a loan. You, now you got a, a good guitar. Were you thinking about performing at that point? I was you, performing. You were performing. I, I okay. immediately got a gig at a coffee house called Reflections. Nice. Uh, it was a good weekly Friday night gig. I got that's how a lot how I got students. Oh, Didn't huh. have any recordings to sell at that yeah. point, but made tips and stuff, and people were really appreciative. I quickly established myself as a, you know, one of the leading guitarists in Boston. Was it just and, tips, or did the coffee house pay you? Oh, I don't think they paid. Yeah, no, okay. tips. And uh, but I felt you know that I had a prime time. You know, like yeah, on, and you were getting students. It wasn't just background music, and I was getting students. Cool. And yeah. it was sort of a, you know, it's a, you know, it a good gig to have. And um, were you playing originals or playing? No, I was playing all standard classical stuff. Standard classical stuff, yeah. like like not after John um, Dowland's Nocturnal or like, I, I, uh, well, my my like, repertoire. Uh, of my senior recital was uh, Dowland and Bach and uh, Nocturnal and uh, Hans Werner Henze, I already mentioned, and, and um, uh, I, 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 Frank Martin, Hathor P.S. Berev, and uh, other Bach and um, some Spanish stuff, some Tuagroba oh. and Cadiga and yeah. those things. And I, I played all that stuff, yeah. serious music, you know, yeah. up on stage, right, right in the coffee house. And, and were people, I mean, was it background? I mean, you're on stage. No, so I was not on stage. So I mean, like I think people were talking yeah. a little bit okay. suddenly. But, do they, but they recognize it? I mean, what, what? do they recognize the pieces? Or are they like, oh, oh. Okay, here comes the Bach? Or, you know, I think, again, I developed my reputation there locally because other guitarists did come to see me and stuff uh, on occasion or happened so in was, and yeah, heard okay. about me and came to meet me or cool. something yeah. like that. Um, it was. I, I also got a, a, a gig teaching at Emmanuel College right off the bat. I, I think see. I had one student, <laughs> but I gave a recital there that fall, and I remember a couple of students from uh, Berkeley College came mm. and asked if I gave lessons and started taking lessons with me. Because they didn't have classical at Berkeley, or I can't mention names at this point. <laughs> oh, they did, but it was somebody that <laughs> somebody they didn't like. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, and um, but um, two years later, so I made my living doing all the, I, you know, making a little bit of money playing at local libraries and stuff. I did not pursue an international career. I didn't go to master class. I mentioned that I think. And yeah, yeah, I was very happy in the in the choir. I got very involved in the early music scene. Then, though I only played guitar and sang, so I sang in the choir. Uh, but after two or three years, I somebody loaned me a lute, mm. uh, which I didn't use in the choir, but I, I started playing it and uh, accompanied a few singers, did a few local recitals, played in the Harvard houses and stuff, and got to know, be known about around the, the local concert series mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, but then the early music took over. Uh, I got married to this. New, new girl who kept me from, in Boston. From the choir, right? Yep, the girl from the choir, which I couldn't <laughs> tell that whole story, but there's no time. No, but but yeah, I met a girl in the choir and, and fell in love overnight, and we were together uh, immediately and have been for you still are. Years, I heard you perform the other night, and she's a beautiful singer and a yeah. beautiful person. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we, we played together um, ever since 1976. We did our first concert together as a small quintet. Um, and then that group became known as consort, Live Oak Consort or something. And then we got rid of two people, too long a story, but, um, and ended up as a trio, a trio Live Oak. We went to Europe, summer of 79. So you ended up with an international career. And then we yeah. started thinking about an international career. We got a rave review in the International Herald Tribune. Oh, wow. Then we went into Madrid and got introduced. That, that to review, some, if I can stop you for a second, the review in the International Herald Tribune, was that? 
pure just nope okay Connect, <laughs> connections that was connections okay so how did the, you the work the guy that? who wrote that was a freelancer I think he was a freelance writer yeah who had been my wife's brother's best friend wow okay in, at Yale so you gave him a heads up hey we're going to be playing he lived in we, Barcelona oh okay and like I said he was a freelance writer he was looking yeah. for things to go so he ended up uh uh, I don't think we'd ever met him before, but he ended up traveling around with us for a few concerts out oh, in the wow. countryside or in Catalonia outside of Barcelona. Oh, beautiful, yeah. It was gorgeous. His little six-year-old son uh, hung out with us, helped mm. us carry in some stuff. And this was all very spontaneous. We just went. We didn't know where we were going at all. But people freaked out. Well, they, we'd walk yeah. into a village and just ask if we could sing in the local Romanesque church that was 800 years old. Sounds are magical over there. Yeah. We were singing. By this time, I had given up the guitar. Well, I was about to give up guitar playing and become a full-time early musician, mm. singing and playing its various instruments. And um, and this trip, night, summer of nineteen seventy nine, just confirmed all that. Mm. Um, so, so we had to go, such you go a to great Spain time. to be convinced to give up guitar. That's, uh, <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> ironic? Yeah. Because um, well, there are so many guitarists over there, is that part of the reason? It's like well, no, no. It was just the, it was the, the the allure of early music at that time. Yeah. Playing, Playing in those old churches, we were yeah. we were singing Spanish music. These that these people. Uh, this is two years after Franco died. Mm. Spain is still still really basically a backwater. I hate to use that word, but you know, okay. it Apologies had been to my friend Miguel. Okay, yes, it had been for centuries. <clears throat> you know, basically since. Ferdinand and Isabel kicked the Jews out and the Moors out, the Muslims, in 1492. That was, that was the beginning of their end. America, are you listening? Please. You know, let's not <laughs> it's go not, down that path. That's not funny. No, you I can, You yeah. can edit that out if you want to. No, no. But, I, but you know, that's the interesting part. But I, I'm, yeah. not a, I'm not a complete historian. Sure. But I, I, I did a lot of 16th century Spanish music, and it was the golden age of Spain. But what did they do? They raped South America. They brought in all this gold to pay for the fact that they kicked all the intellectuals out mm. and all the, the professionals and stuff, and they thought they could live high and mighty. Mm -hmm. And it lasted for last. a few decades, yeah. and then bang, nothing, mm. you know? And so, not nothing, of course, you know? Oh, yeah. It's still a so great culture. It's a, it's a great country. I love yeah. it. It's a beautiful country. Um, but uh, when we went there, people had never heard. We were singing 16th century uh, early 16th century trios and stuff from a, a book called the Cancionero de Palacio, which was from Ferdinand and Isabel's time. And these people literally had never heard it. Mm. They wondered, how did you Americans, the most suspicious of them, accused us of rape and like, where did you get this music? You must have stolen it from our libraries. And mm -hmm. I said, well, actually, we went to the Harvard Public Library and the Harvard Library mm -hmm. and checked out the books that your great, he, 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 I never knew how to say his name, Higinio Angles, was the great um, musicologist of Spain in the mid-century. And he collected all this stuff and published it. So it's, it's published, but, but the local people didn't know this. They didn't know any of this stuff. Was they it, wondered how they got this. So we were just... Was that stuff banned by Franco or just... Was that stuff, no, 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 they just, just didn't know. They just it had was, been exposed to it. Okay. Just yeah. had been exposed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if Frank, Franco probably didn't know anything about it. Himself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, certainly others did. Some guitarist, Emilio uh, Pujol, knew about it. Mm. He knew about all that music, and Segovia, in turn, this turn, knew about Narvaez and Milan and those things. But but the public didn't. 
Mm-hmm. So here we were, the Americans coming in, they were fa- basically fascinated. And we, and we did get introduced then. We kind of climbed the ladder very quickly and went to, to Madrid, got introduced to a, a guy who ran ABC, which was a conservative newspaper. He loved us. We went to his house. We got invited to a, another you know, rich banker's house and played at parties. On the oh, okay. Plaza. It was, you know, we got invited to the, so, uh, yeah. the Queen of Spain's interior designer's house and played wow. in the 16th century parlor. It was amazing. So, so it's we a combination just, of, sorry, talent, uh, right place at right time, yeah, some yeah. good PR, and yeah. meet you, I guess, maybe through the PR or because of what you were singing and how well you played it, people in positions of power or high culture yeah. were noticing and inviting you yeah. to play. Yeah, and, okay. the, and that, you know, that, 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 that article in the, the Herald Tribune article was probably the first that came out. Yeah. Because we were in the Barcelona huge. area first, and then we went to Madrid for like six weeks or something, and then, then we went and spent another month or six weeks in the Madrid area. Mm. And uh, so that article helped. And again, my, my uh, wife's brother-in-law had preceded us. He had lived in Spain for a year or two. He had studied uh, guitar some, but it decided to become an artist instead. But he he uh, he was better than I at uh, you know introducing himself to people and stuff. And so when we got to Madrid, he happened to be there at that time, I think. And he had um, he introduced us to some of these people. He, he's in the band. The, this is my, Nan- my my Nancy, my wife's brother. Who was just happened to be there? I forget. Okay. I forget all the details. So he's, he's kind of he's he's more of an extrovert, and he yeah. knows you guys. So he's helping to introduce you to exactly the people he, he needs to know. So, that's yeah. the following year, it's either eighty or eighty-one. He had gone in to do a bust of uh, Rodrigo and huh. Segovia and huh. other famous people, other uh, writers and bullfighters and stuff. And he was hot and heavy over there mm. for a while, and introduced us to a lot of people. And we went and played for Rodrigo. And Rodrigo subsequently wrote three songs for our ensemble. Oh, wow. Uh, called Liricas Castellanas. And so uh, we came home in the, after, uh, you know, we went there in 79, 81, and 82. And could, could have kept doing this a lot. But at that point, we get back to finances and, and life. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, our trio member... Uh, on the heels of a grave review in the New York Times. A grave review or great? A, gr- a rave. Rave review, okay. And others, Seattle, we had all the big PR, newspapers. PR set up, you, you, you guys know, are flying high. We were flying high. And uh, he's just, his father died, keeled over a heart attack. And a month later, we had this horrible month with him, uh, trying to be with his family and doing gigs at Christmas time. And he was, he was just exhausted. At the end of all that, he sat us down and said, I quit. And Nancy was three months pregnant, four months pregnant. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but he was clearly exhausted. Mm. And working with a couple is tough. Yeah, we tried to be good. Yeah, (laughs) but I'm sure that was tough. And at any rate, so we, you know, everything crashed, just crashed. And I'd given up guitar playing. I wasn't even teaching. We were making money on gigs completely. Yeah, yeah. And in that time, there was it was a different era in New England, even at home in New England. Um, you could write somebody a letter and get a gig. Mm. You know, if you had some good reviews, and we did, yeah. you know, you could get reviews. Now you can't even get reviews. And yeah. Getting a New York Times, now I don't know how you do that anymore. 
Right, right. And um, well, is it? I mean, at that point, there were more places to gig. I would imagine. There first were of all, literally yeah. more places. Yeah, places. Every village. I'm grossly exaggerating, but every little village in, in New England. Yeah. Had a little concert series. Yeah. With, you know, you could make five hundred to fifteen or six hundred to eighteen hundred dollars or something on a gig. Um, and in those days, that, that was, if we got twelve hundred dollars for a gig, we were flying high. Are you doing any of that type of gigging today? Was yeah, sure. Um, which which town? I mean, I know Concord you know, does like a series now. You know, it's just a lot harder. I mean, the, in the in the Reagan years with the budget cutbacks, we yeah. saw a lot of those concert series would have a concert every month, eight eight months out of the year, let's say. Mm-hmm. Then it cut it back to six. Mm-hmm. And we were the we used to call ourselves the Polish Dancing Bears because a lot of those concert series were serious. Music, you know, they'd have a string quartet, a pianist, a mm. vocal recital, and another string quartet, and a violin sonata concert, and then maybe an early music group. <laughs> so we were that extra thing. Okay. When those, you know, so we when did survive. Happens. I mean, we, yeah. we did find various other people who replaced our trio member. It just was never the same. Mm. And, uh, and we had kids. We had another two kids right in a row, and so we couldn't put quite as much time into it. And these series were shrinking from eight concerts to six to five to four. Mm. And then many of them disappeared. Okay. So, so yeah. I don't think the same. There are series like that around, but it's not the same. Yes. Very. Then it was very community sort of oriented thing. Mm. There's a community concert series in, uh, in, in Concord, New Hampshire. Mass, they had actually, the yeah. LA Guitar Quartet last, last year ago. Okay. Yeah, I think it was a year ago, uh, which was very unusual, but that, that was cool. And then mm. they have interesting things. But they have um, a big stage and uh, four concerts a year, and they try to get pretty big names. Yeah. I mean, so LA, LA uh, and they're not going to hire a local group. Right, right. If they're bringing the L.A. guitar quartet in, yeah. what are you going to do? The trio breaks down. There are fewer yeah. gigs for the trio anyway. You, you, one kid is coming, another, um, you don't know yet, but it's so, on the way. So, so what, I told what you, you I had no business come? sense whatsoever. So what do we do? We move to the country. We lived in Salem, New Hampshire, uh, Salem, Massachusetts uh, at okay. this time. During yeah. this whole period of time, we lived in either Arlington, Mass, or uh, most of that period of time in Salem, Mass. Okay. In 1986, we, we were looking for a little quiet and peaceful to raise our kids. And the suburbs were just too expensive for us. So we had uh, been we fortunate. We're in the Reagan years now, the 80s now? Yeah, mid-80s, uh, towards the end of Reagan's time. And um, uh, we had been fortunate enough to be able to buy a house. Uh, that we fixed up, we rented part of it, and we made it. Um, you know, being landlords was no fun, but it was good money, mm-hmm. easy money. Where Where are you in Massachusetts? Not now? easy emotionally because you got to kick somebody out or something. Or you find yeah. out you've got a drunk in your house, and it's tough. Yeah. You know, but we had space in this house, and so we rented basically half of it. Where was this? In Salem. Oh, this is uh, Salem, Salem, Mass. Salem, Mass. Salem, Mass. And, but, but that was, um, you know, it helped us financially through that period of time. So we weren't teaching or anything, but when we moved out, we ended up, uh, going out to, to, you know, we, we, we ended up realizing the amount of money we had selling our house. And there was a big real estate boom at the time, in the late eighties, mid eighties. Yep. Um, so we made a lot of money, but everybody's was going up. So yep. we ended up taking that money and going from a 10th of an acre to 45 acres in New Hampshire. Wow. And buying a 1789 farmhouse that we fell in love with. Hmm. It was the stupidest thing we ever did, <laughs> financially and uh, professionally. But we figured, well, we're touring artists. We we can doesn't matter where we live. We can keep touring and stuff. 
But we did end up at that time. We had started teaching more. And um, so we ended up coming, uh, we each spent two days a week in uh, the Boston area at friend, various friends' houses, various times teaching privately. And um, You're teaching and classical that, guitar now? Or I was teaching lute? voice. Voice, okay. Uh, and playing lute, and I was teaching voice. I had been studying voice all this time. We had various teachers throughout this period of time. By this time, we, we found a German teacher who came to Boston on a regular basis. But we, so we studied with him when he was in Boston, and we went to Germany occasionally and studied with him. It was not an on, you know, it wasn't a weekly thing. We were pros at this point, but yeah. we were, you, you know, voice, voice, it's very different in the, the voice world and the guitar world. Mm. You, you teachers keep up, I mean, I mean uh, professional singers basically keep a voice teacher their whole life. Yeah. Keep them in shape huh. to make sure they're doing things right. Yeah. Guitarists, we, we should, we should take, you know, we should, we should, Pay attention, you know, it's, it's a good, I, I, I mean, I, I think some, uh, well, I don't, I won't talk about other instruments, I don't know, but I know singers do. Yeah, yeah. So at any rate, uh, I was teaching voice, and, uh, and so we were still doing gigs, and then um, uh, eventually, you know, jumping ahead, we, we became a duo in around 1992, we started doing duo concerts, and then trio and quartet concerts with various other people, uh, and every once in a while we'd have a good year. Um, but a good year was still nothing like, um, like what Peter Jansen talking about, 40 or 50 gigs isn't much. I mean, for a classical group, that, that that's a lot. Be, yeah, that's a yeah lot. it sounded like a lot to me. And, yeah. <laughs> and so, so if we had a, a really good year in the early 90s, it, it might have been 25 gigs, some of them really good concerts paying well, yeah. others maybe not so well, but, but, you know, but still concerts. So at what point, so you're, the 25 gigs a year is barely paying the bills, I sure, assume. Sure, so, so we're yeah. teaching, you're teaching okay, at least a couple of days a week, okay. each of us. Yep. Um, and then at what point do you get and, to the composing? And then yeah. uh, in 19, um, around 96, I think it was, uh, I was getting tired of all this, getting tired of going to Boston, getting tired of finding gigs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw an ad in the uh, Soundboard magazine. They said, got a college degree and don't know what to do with it. And it was very much intended for the 24-year-old or the 22-year-old or 26-year-old. Yeah. You know, totally, you know, here I was, I don't know, 44 years old or something. And I looked at it and I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an advertisement for child bloom guitar method, teaching kids. Oh, okay. And it's, it's sort of a, it's not franchise, it's not the right word, but you pay a license fee to, to um, the child loan company based in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. Kevin Taylor is the owner and director and still is, I believe. Um, um, and so I just called him up. And Kevin told me, I, I said, I need some more basic income close to home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can you help me? And, he, and, he, and he, he was very organized. He looked at some sort of demographic book that he got and looked about where I live. Well, let me call you. Let me do a little research. I'll call you back. Called me back. Said, "No, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> you live too much out in the boondocks. You're, yeah. you know, I don't think you'll get enough. You know, my system is based on getting a lot of kids coming through. Yeah. Teaching with small classes of two to four kids. Uh -huh. I just don't have enough kids around there. You're not going to be able to do it. And I said, I said, well, listen." I think I really want to try this. As a matter of fact, I'd just done a year teaching at Plymouth State College up in northern New Hampshire, uh, and I just hated it. I'm just not an institution person. Mm. And it was too far a drive. I figured I was getting paid about 12 bucks an hour 
mm, you know, spending thir two 13-hour days up there a week. You know, after my drive time and sitting around doing nothing up there during the day, you know, I literally was making ten, twelve, thirteen dollars an hour. Mm. And I just, I'm, I might as well go work at McDonald's or something. What, what's the point? This is crazy. Yeah, uh, I was presumably doing what I was supposed to love, but I didn't love it. The students weren't that great. The, the, the beginning guitar class, I was not trained for. I didn't like it. Uh, I told Kevin Taylor that I really want to try this. And I did, and he was very helpful. Uh, you know, he was a, a you know great consultant, basically, and I would help him whenever I had questions with yep. teaching method or particular business practices or, or problem kids or problem parents or whatever. And it was it was um, I really enjoyed it for quite a few years, and I credit it with uh, uh, I credit you know that experience plus a, a very idle challenge from my wife to get me to start composing. And I, I started composing little tiny pieces for my kids. Right. Um, and a uh, few of them actually became part of the childhood method later on. And I did a recording for them of, of their right. certain level of playing that yep. I'm very proud of. Still, They're still using it, I found out recently. And, um, so you get royal, royalties from something like that? I, I, I was paid off. <laughs> it's too complicated. You know, yeah, it, would, yeah. it would be a nightmare for him to pay me royalties. But, yeah. but he paid me a reasonable fee cool. to make the recording, yeah. and, and I, I signed a release to it. So, but, yeah. but he did renew the license recently. He's going to send me some more money. So yeah, cool. you you know, it was a license for a certain amount of time. Right. Um, but, so I started writing these simple pieces uh, and then started writing some things for myself and ended up... Uh, started playing in the concert and made my first CD of solo guitar. I, mean, I, I never, I forgot the part of the story where I started playing the guitar again. Right. But anyway, we'll let that. Okay. Uh, during the early, At some point early, started playing guitar. Yes. In the early nineties, I, I started playing guitar again. Nice. And uh, and really loved it. And so I went through uh, that whole period of time uh, in a, in a uh, trying to figure out how to play lute and guitar, lute with thumb under no nails and guitar with thumb out nails. And uh, it took me probably 10 years, seven, eight years, to really get it down to mm. where I use nails for both, but I still managed to get my thumb under technique in with an almost no nails kind of sound on the lute. And I was very proud of it, very happy with it, um, but um, uh, slowly lost sort of interest, not interest in the music, but the early music scene started to just, I just didn't feel part of it. Yeah. I don't think I ever did. Hmm. Um, really feel like an integrated part of it. I had a certain respect. I went, I taught at the LSA seminars. I did concerts there, the Lute Society of America, that is, and, mm. you know, through the 90s and stuff, and, um, you know, really enjoyed that. I had a lot of good friends in there. But somehow, you know, my guitar started taking over. And, yeah. and, um, uh, and then I started composing songs for my wife, and then I started, so the first five years was like solos for myself, then the five years writing tons of songs, for both lute and voice and guitar and voice. Um, and, and so now the CDs are in the process, the whole other part of the story was um, I had a couple of bad experiences with recording, mm. uh, some early music recordings, and uh, uh, ended up in a big fight with the, with the guy who ran a record company once. It was a too long story, interesting story, but too long for here. Uh, we took him to Spain with us, and we did not come home friends. Yeah. And it was an ex exhausting experience. Not a smart thing to do. We did two CDs in eight days. In Spain? Yeah, in Spain. Okay. In the 1990, 90, I think. But you still have uh, those CDs? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and it's all your music? 
And no, that was all early music. Uh, but uh, I didn't start composing until 1997. Okay. And so, but by, by the end of the 90s, I was composing actively, and I bought my own recording equipment. Oh. And we'd hired a couple of really good recording engineers in Boston, who, and I saw what they were doing, and they were like, they were using the same two mics that I owned, but the same, basically the same uh, digital audio tape recording device. And I listened to one of these that we spent an enormous amount of money on, and I thought, you know, I could have done that myself. Mm. And so ever since we started Gyre Records, Gyre Music, Gyre whatever we call it these days, I don't know, Gyre Music, I guess. And we started putting out our own CDs in the late 90s. Cool. And you have you and, signed other artists to Gyre Music? No. I, I've talked about some people to it, but um, decided I don't want to get that seriously in, into doing it. I've, I've recorded a few other people. Uh, Stefan Coin, I recorded a couple of years ago. He's a German guitarist who was in Boston for a year, and I recorded him. Very proud of the work we did together. I've recorded a few other people, like demo tapes and stuff, and if, even now I'm talking to some people about doing it. I'm good at it. I get great reviews for the sound I get, and, um, but it's something I don't want to take over my life. Yeah. And so I've made a little bit of extra money recording other people here and there. I save a lot of money recording myself. Yep. But it also takes a lot of time. But it's uh, my wife does all the design work. She's very gotten very good at that over the years. That's another way we've saved. You know, we're, we're supposed to be talking about commerce. I mean, we've yeah, yeah. we've become. I mean, I think we're we're up there with the original DIY people. Uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. we we the started. Indie labels, yeah. So yeah. so you're you're starting to compose your own pieces at ninety seven and making CDs shortly yeah. after that. Yeah. I assume, yep. the, the, yep. and you're designing labels yourself. Um, and this is sort of the tail end, the tail end of the music industry, yeah, as we know it, or as we, <laughs> as knew, we knew it, it. <laughs> yeah, as we knew and loved it, yeah. So the CDs, were you pressing like hundreds? Were you pressing thousands? Uh, we, we'd get a thousand at the time. Okay. Now yeah. I won't do that now. There's, there's, no, right. Okay. I no. sell a few at festivals and concerts still, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, but not enough to get thousands. Now is the back catalog on Spotify or? Yeah. How, okay. We have. Uh, First, we did CD Baby mm -hmm. distribution. I moved to Noxus a few years ago. Oh, oh great. So okay. Noxus does our digital distribution. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not much money at all, but it's, it's something flows in does, every month. So, so the artists that I've spoken to, some have seemed to think that Spotify is indecipherable as far as how they pay. Others yeah. have a sense that it's 0. .0008 cents per <laughs> stream. Yeah, literally. And uh, do, do you yeah. know how you? Oh, I get paid? it. I, I I get. Yeah, it's it's something like that. I think it's you know oh oh seven. I think it's actually less. Okay, <laughs> goes down every time I, I ask. Wrong. I get yeah. I get a uh, uh, the first. I I don't. I, do you um, get paid directly from Spotify or is it through Naxos? No, or? through Naxos. Okay, so, so Naxos is taking a cut. A monthly. I might be why you're yeah, they, a little less. Yeah. Well, a little. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, uh, Naxos takes a cut, but not much. Yeah, they're, they're very reasonable. I forget. Twenty percent or something. I, I really don't know. I don't remember. But it's. Um, uh, but I did start making more money through them than CD Baby because they distribute to the classical um, uh, streaming sites. You, more money through Naxos than you did through CD yeah, Baby. Just, okay. Just a bit. But not. But Spotify is a wash, or is Spotify that, helping? That, that that's in the stream, but it, it, Spotify doesn't do much for us. So what, are the, music what is like. where is Naxos distributing that's uh, helpful? Uh, you know, I knew when we first started out, uh, the first couple of months were incredible. Yeah. Like instead of making $20, 30 $40, I was making $400 or something. Huh. And 
but unfortunately, it slipped back down. Um, I guess I'm not. We haven't been putting out enough new stuff. So when you put up something new, it, yeah. it, you, you you get a really good month. Okay, but, but if some if that, some kind of classical only streaming services, they um, they had their own for a while, but they gave up on it. Oh. Um, what was it called? I don't even know what it was called. I don't know if it's gone, uh, it's gone. But uh, uh, I should know. Um, that's all right. If it's, if it's gone, it's gone. Uh, yeah. It's gone. yeah. Wrapping up here, cognizant of time, and I appreciate all the time you've given me. Um, last two questions. So is first, is there an artist uh, that you're listening to today that uh, is exciting you and that you recommend that the listeners also check out? Um, uh, I, I, I wrote my first review for Soundboard Magazine a couple of months ago, a few yeah. months ago, of Atanas Urkusunov. Atanas Ukushinov. Who is known here. He's okay. a, a Bulgarian guitarist, composer, lives in Paris. Uh, has a fabulous flute guitar duet with his Japanese wife, who also lives in Cool. Mia Ogura is her name. Cool. Um, and they play uh, two kinds of music. His original music and American jazz standards. Okay. Uh, American songbook. Do you have a favorite and, among the two? Uh, or a favorite track? Well, uh, a favorite track. Oh. What's his last? Well, the auto-portrait, self, which means self-portrait, um, self basically, auto-portrait mm. 2, auto -portrait is, the, two. Is, is the CD I reviewed and absolutely adored. That's just Atanas himself. They put out a duo record called Bulbop, B-U-L-B-O-P. Uh, and that, I think, is all Atanas music. I don't, I have not heard that whole thing. Uh, there's, if you don't like modern music, like when people start doing bleebops and stuff, there's some of it you might not like. I adore it. Uh, it's, uh, I haven't heard the whole CD, but I've heard parts of it. And uh, the flute player does a lot of uh, singing into the flute, uh, various, uh, what are called extended techniques on the flute. Mm. Some of them are extremely rhythmic and jazzy. But in his Bulgarian jazzy style, he, he's, he's Bulgarian and he does a lot of mixed meter stuff. So she's going, and that was pretty good invitation. And she's check that out. She's fabulous. Okay. And they're so rhythmic. It's so, it's just vital. It's vital music. Really great stuff. Very different. Atanas is a superb player. All right, D definitely uh, check that out. And then the re the, uh, we're reviewing a CD right now. I'll just, I'll another, just give it a plug. Okay. Uh, Jan, G-Y-A-N. G-Y-A-N. Jan Riley, as okay. it sounds. He's Terry Riley's son. He has a very uh, very different style, but very warm. Both both these players, I think, are very heartfelt. They deep roots in their music. Mm. Um, um, uh, Atanas, as I said, has this Bulgarian strong folk roots, um, strong uh, national identity, but he loves jazz. So he, you know, mix whatever. Mm. Uh, whereas Gian's influences are all over the place: American folk music, um, uh, Persian music. Uh, I don't know what all Eastern influence specifically. Indian rag, I've seen. And so, so he'll, he'll, he's this. This current album is just a, a brilliant mix of all these different world styles. That just come out of him. They're, he's not like I don't think he's trying. He's not thinking, oh, I'm going to go Persian now, and I'm going to mm. go American now, and I'm going to go Indian now, or you know whatever. I think it's just really just a music that comes deep out of that's song. cool. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. All right. And then for the outro, 
a piece of yours that you're uh, that you are proud of, or that you think the listeners would enjoy, that we can just exit with. Uh, that you're going to put on? Yeah, That's yeah. recorded? Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll... Uh, Black Falcon, I'll say... Uh, Black Falcon, my... though, Frank, Good. thank you very much for your thank time. You, it's a pleasure talking yeah. to you. All right, that is a wrap for this fourth episode of More Art Than Science. If you like the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show. And when more people find the show, more people are exposed to the artists that I'm interviewing on the show. Thanks a lot. And here we have, um, without further ado, Frank Wallace playing Black Falcon from 2013. Enjoy.